Uh, So if you'd like to pick up a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1147. 1147. So we came to the end of a section in chapters 1 to 4 where Paul has been trying to pull the thinking of this Corinthian church inside out. They think they're spiritual, but Paul thinks they're mere infants. They think they're very wise and they have power. But Paul says, no, 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 you've misunderstood this all. Christ is wisdom. Christ is power. That message of the gospel, the cross, that they thought was weak, uh, was actually power and wisdom for salvation. And now we come into chapter 5, a a chapter, beginning a section which really takes us up to chapter 14, where Paul is going to basically be dealing with two uh, huge issues in the life of the Corinthian church, sexual immorality and idolatry. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Uh, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Amen. This is God's word. Let me tell you a true story. Mark, 
is a committed Christian. He certainly gives that impression. He is uh, raised by Christian parents, attends church every Sunday with his wife and with his three children. Uh, during the sermon, he sits with the Bible open on his lap. He seems attentive. After the service, he smiles politely to all the people who are around who have really watched him grow up in the church. But Mark is not all that he makes out to be. Uh, the night before, he slept in, an, in another woman's bed. He'd only just that night before met her in the pub. Uh, they got talking. He got drunk, went back to her flat. They had sex. He got up in the morning, checked his phone, uh, deleted the 23 missed calls that he had from his wife spread throughout the night. He drove home. He greeted his kids with a big smile, ignored his wife, went for a shower, ate some breakfast, went to church. Uh, the sad thing is, it's not a once-off, it's a weekly occurrence, almost. His wife is depressed and lonely. Uh, he's abusive towards her, not physically, but mentally. And when she's sitting in church, she just wants to cry out for help, but she's really scared. Uh, she finds herself hating other people, including him. She hates his parents who are in the church, who sit beside her in church, because they know about the situation but don't do anything about it. Even his dad is one of the leaders. She starts to hate other people in the church, because other people know about it and won't do anything about it. In particular, she hates really what every Christian should love, the communion service. Whenever Mark passes her the trays of bread and wine at communion, she can't even look at him. He eats and drinks without any kind of misgiving whatsoever. Uh, even though she's just heard the pastor say, you can take part in the bread and wine if you love the Lord Jesus with all your heart, and if you're in good standing with your brothers and sisters, you can come and eat. But she thinks, well, my husband is not even in good standing with me. Never mind anyone else, and yet he's taking the Lord's Supper. Later on that day, she will do what she's done many a time, pleading for him just to repent. But he just swears at her, as he usually does, and threatens to smear her reputation if she walks out or does anything that would shame him. It's a true story. A professing Christian whose immorality was well known in the church and was painfully real to his wife. Now let me ask you a question. Uh, how did you feel as I was recounting that story for you? Sadness and sorrow for the wife, surely. Uh, concern for the kids, absolutely. Anger towards Mark? Anyone? Yeah. Frustration with the church for doing nothing? You want something to be done about that situation, don't you? But what should be done about it? Is this where we start talking about the thing called church discipline? Uh, shouldn't Mark be confronted about his sin? 
encouraged to repent under God's welcoming grace, to actually enjoy not only the forgiveness of sin that could be his in the gospel if he would humble himself, turn from his sin, and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, receiving not only that amazing forgiveness and that amazing grace, but help, compassionate care from the church to shepherd him through that situation, to serve his heart well, that he might walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, not unworthy. Church discipline really should be what is enacted. But here's where something of a dilemma comes in for us. Perhaps some of you are already thinking, am I allowed to judge this man? Uh, as I consider his situation, I mean, he, his sin's just the same as my sin, isn't it? Am I allowed to judge him? I mean, doesn't even Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 say, do not judge or you too will be judged? I mean, it's God's, it's God's job to judge, not ours. Aren't we called to love? Aren't we supposed to love and forgive one another? And anyway, maybe it's better for us just to keep quiet. And I mean, as long as he's coming every week, surely that's a better thing. Maybe if we address this issue with him and he bolts like a horse from the gate, maybe he'll just keep on doing what he's doing. Maybe it's better just to not say anything and then make sure he's coming and hearing the gospel each week and hoping that it'll hit home. Well, it's a very real dilemma for us. When we look at the situation that Paul has already addressed for us, that's come to his attention in the church in Corinth, we see a scene of sexual immorality. Again, that is just as astonishing, really, if not more astonishing than the, than the true story that I have just recounted. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. It seems like a man in the congregation, in the church at Corinth, is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul is rightly concerned about that. Sexual immorality is not fitting for those who profess faith in Christ and who belong to the church. But it's the, the fascinating thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I mean, he will go on to deal with sexual immorality later on in the next chapter. But he, what does he tackle first? Where does Paul's real indignance and astonishment lie? It's not just in the fact that a man is sleeping with his stepmother. It's in the fact that the church has done nothing about it. He's astonished at this. Even as he says in verse 2, And you're proud. You guys are boasting. We are super spiritual. Paul, you should be more like us, they've been saying. That cross stuff, it's all, I mean, it's all quite Simple, really. We've moved on from that. We are endowed with such gifts, such spiritual wisdom, such knowledge. You would do well to listen to us. They're boasting and bragging, thinking that if there was a league table, a Premier League table of churches throughout the world, they would be top with an unbeaten record. And he says, and you're proud. Wow. How can, a, how can a church think like that? If they're accepting something that even the, 
the, the people, the, the, un, the non-Christians round about them think is ridiculous and, and, and just not right. How can they possibly think that they are Christian? How can they possibly think that they are spiritual? Well, maybe they're accept- we don't know, we're not told, but maybe even their acceptance of this man was an indicator that they thought they were super spiritual. They would say, oh, everyone, look how, look how spiritual we are. Look how loving and welcoming we are. Even this man whose, whose sin is so repulsive, even to sex-crazed Corinth, he's welcomed by us. We must be a quality church. Well, Paul says they should have rather taken careful steps to confront this brother, not to be welcoming and accommodating and approving of this man. But rather they should, as it says in verse 2, with the right attitude, mourn. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? The right attitude when it comes to this kind of situation, this serious, this outward, this obvious sin, is grief. It's to mourn. And the right action is to put the person out. And 1 Corinthians 5 gives us some of the clearest teaching on church discipline that we have in the Bible. It's for the good of the sinner and for the good of the church. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you picked a really good night to come to church, has to be said. Uh, really? A man sleeping with his stepmother and hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? I'm sure I don't really need to do much to pique your interest. Um, but bear with us because this passage holds such rich teaching about the kind of grace and forgiveness that's extended to people even who who practice the kind of immorality that it repulses even an unbeliever. And this passage has an awful lot to tell us about what God, how God cares for and how he considers his church, his people together, what they should be like, what they should do. And it points wonderfully to Jesus Christ. But there are two simple things really that we need to see. The church discipline should be enacted. One for the good of the sinner. Two for the good of the church. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. This is where we see church discipline good for the, for the good of the sinner. Verse 3. Paul's very straightforward in this, isn't he? He doesn't pull any punches. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. I'm not even there to hear the story necessarily. I've heard it. But he's already passed judgment. He's not withholding it. He's not reluctant at all, is he? He's not thinking about Matthew 7, 1. He's not thinking about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount here. Why? Well, because Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7 is dealing with something entirely different from church discipline. It's dealing with a super self-righteousness which looks down on other people and their sin as being inferior to them whilst all the while ignoring the very obvious sin that is in that person's life. So that's where he talks about, Jesus talks about uh, specks and planks. You know, don't try and take the speck out of your brother's eye when there is an obvious massive log in your own. Uh, so Paul is able to judge. He's encouraging the church to judge. And he gives clear instruction on what, even what that should look like. Verse 4, 
It's very methodical. When you are assembled together. So it's the church's corporate responsibility to do this. In other words, it's not just the, it's not the responsibility of leaders. This should be something that is for the community of believers that is a local church. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so the sinful nature may be destroyed and a spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, it has to be said that what we're looking at tonight is really an end stage. If, we're, if you think of a spectrum of church discipline, this is really looking at the end stage of discipline, where there has been constant and repeated attempts to address a person's sin, and the person has been unrepentant. They've not been sorry for what they've been doing. In fact, they've been clinging to their sinful life and continuing in, on in that. At the other end of the spectrum is, of course, this kind of thing. This is like church discipline. Whenever we teach, it's a positive form of church discipline. It's formative for us. It teaches us what is right. Maybe some of you are in a one-to-one and you're reading the Bible together and you experience something that's just a little bit further along that spectrum where you read something and say, actually, this, this thing related to pride, can, can I share with you humbly something that I see in your life? Uh, and then you call a brother or sister to rebuke. That's, that's a form of church discipline as, as well. But it's a bit more corrective. And what Paul's talking about here, as I said, is something that's a little bit further on. Now, again, it has to be said even at this point, um, Paul is not, in giving license for the church to judge this person for their sin, he's not trying to say, oh, every time you see some sin committed in the life of a member of your church, you know, you, you go along like some kind of pharisaical police and and try and deal with that. No, this isn't talking about the kind of sin that we all experience in the daily fight of the Christian faith. There's a big difference between a Christian's ongoing struggle with sin and this willful pursuit of a sinful life, which is what we see in the chap in this text. Sometimes in the Christian walk, uh, we can find ourselves very close to the edge of, if you like, a, a, a pool of sin. And sometimes in our weakness... Sometimes in a lack of care, we can just get a little bit too close to the edge and we can find ourselves stumbling in. But we're not happy about the mess we find ourselves in. We're sorry about that and we need some help to get us out. But the kind of guy that Paul is addressing in this situation is someone who is caring very little about how close he's getting to that pool of sin. In fact, he's standing on the edge and like little Tom Daly, he's ready just to dive in. In fact, he has dived in and he's swimming around and he's enjoying it very, very much. Okay? There's a difference. If you, want to, if you want me to give you a concrete example of that, there's a difference between an ordinary lie that, we might, that might slip out of our mouths in the form of an exaggeration, for example. A, a, an ordinary lie that is repented of, that we're still sorry for, and the lie that a person builds his life upon and refuses to relinquish. There's a difference. So church discipline is never just an issue about, well, which sin is it that's committed as if we have some kind of reference book that tells us whether a sin is weighty enough to warrant this kind of put this man out of the church kind of thing. We don't have that. But we do have help in the scriptures to see that when sin is outward, so when it's public, when it's serious, when, it's, when people are being seriously hurt, and when a person is unrepentant, we should be asking questions. 
and considering whether this is necessary. Now, you do have to take into account a whole load of things that we don't actually have time to take into account, even this evening as part of this. How long has a person been a Christian? What kind of teaching have they been received? Do they seem grieved by their sin, or is there even a tone of annoyance about their confession? Do they confess their sin quickly in recognition of the fact that it is a sin, or do we have to try and drag it out of them? So are they, doing, are they saying sorry just to comply with us, because that's what they think they need to do, or are they genuinely sorry? What we're looking for is to see those who are characteristically unrepentant of outward serious sin and to be seriously, lovingly concerned for those brothers and sisters because of the danger they place themselves in. So Paul says, hand this man over to Satan. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. Now, flesh here is basically a synonym for the sinful nature. And what Paul is saying is, to hand this man over to Satan is to treat him as if he is someone who does not belong to the community of God's people. Now, you need to understand what the church is in this regard, first of all. The church is for those who have their faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. People who are gathered together, who are called out of the world gathered together to rejoice in God, to worship God, and to glorify God in everything that they do. And this church is the very place where people are loved, where people experience peace and mercy. These things are supposed to be typical of the people of God, and where they are supposed to be distinct from the world. So that's what it is, to be called out of the world, and to be gathered together to be the people of God. So to hand this man over to Satan is, if you like, to turn him back out of this loving fellowship into the sphere of Satan, which is the world. He's a prince of this world, as we read in John 12 and in John 14. The kingdoms of this world temporarily belong to him. And what is Paul expecting to happen? Well, it's this destruction of the flesh. This indwelling sin remains a very real enemy for us. Do we, do we remember that? Do we call that to mind often? Uh, sure, we are forgiven of our sin, but not one of us who are Christians uh, can truly say we are sinless. We are not perfect. No, one day we will be when we see him face to face, when we are in heaven with him. But still we walk by the flesh. And at times we can be led by our sinful tendencies. We're led by our old self rather than the spirit who lives in us, who has given us a a Godward orientation, a Godward leaning, and and the, the energy, the strength to match that. With the man in this passage, the sinful nature has the upper hand. And when this person undergoes church discipline, they being in a very real way turned back out into the sphere of Satan, are supposed to miss the loving fellowship of God's people. To miss the gracious reminders of of the cross and what it wins for those who put their faith and trust in it. And to turn them out into that sphere of Satan where really sin promises much but delivers nothing. Or we think Satan is for us 
but he really is against us. He's only ever for himself. I sure there may be some kind of pleasures or entertainment in the sinful lifestyle, but they only serve to drag us away from God's. So Paul's aim is for this person to come face to face with the reality of their sinful nature in such a way that it might help them come to their senses. Because the overall purpose is stated for us at the end of the passage, at the end of this verse. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and what? His spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So this isn't about punishment, is it? It's about restoration. It's in the hope that a person will come to their senses and see this way is careering towards a pit of destruction. And to recognize that they need to turn and repent. The purpose is to warn of danger in the hope that people will be saved. I don't know if you saw in the news this week, but there was a huge sinkhole appeared in the U.S. state of Ohio the size of four football pitches. Did anyone see that on BBC? I mean, it was massive. It, 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 part of the sinkhole took away uh, about a 30-meter section of motorway, leaving a 20-meter drop for any car that drove on and didn't see this massive sinkhole. Now, there was one house that was kind of perched just right on the very edge of this sinkhole, and apparently the folks in there got out of their house but weren't really caring about their house. There was nothing they can do about it, really, if it was going to fall into a massive hole. But they recognized the motorway, the danger that people were in up there. So they, the people in this house ran up to the motorway, straight up the lane, which, was, which had fallen out, and were waving their arms, frantically trying to stop people from careering to their certain death, surely. And this kind of discipline that Paul has in mind here is like almost like a congregation waving their arms and pleading for a person to stop careering towards an eternal death. Uh, I, 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 I have the same kind of appeal week in, week out, outside after the morning service with my son, Will. Uh, he is regularly running that way towards the road. And uh, he often has a sneaky wee look. That's how sinful they can be, you know. He has a sneaky little look to see how far he can go. And, we, and I plead with him, stop. Sometimes I'll just run and grab him, which is really what we should be doing. Please, don't, don't go that way. There's a bus that way. Stop. Church discipline plays that same kind of role. Pleading for a person's life that they might be saved on that day of judgment that is to come. And really, that's what Paul seeks to do by handing this man over to Satan. By putting him out of the fellowship, as he said in verse 2, and as he says again in verse 13, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man, from among you. It's almost as if God is asking the church to stage a small play that pictures a great judgment that is to come so that the person who is willfully, deliberately running into sexual immorality and sin and complete ignorance of Christ and the cross and our obedience and devotion that we are owe him and enacting this judgment to say stop it's a compassionate warning basically it's a demonstration for us that actually God loves sinners that he cares enough about their eternal soul to teach his church that this is what we should do 
in the hope that some who are living immoral lives in pursuit of sin would turn back and find him. So church discipline, to some, sounds harsh. It sounds judgmental. But it's for their good. It's for the good of the sinner that they might be saved on that coming day of the Lord. I don't know if, if you are here tonight and you're not a Christian. Um, many people don't know about this thing called the day of the Lord. Uh, many of you may be going about your everyday life assuming that tomorrow will be a day just like today. And that you're going to have lots and lots of these days. But actually the Bible teaches us very clearly that, that God is our creator, made us to love and worship him. But we have turned from him and we worship other things, created things. And because he created us, we're not autonomous, we're accountable to him. He holds us accountable for that and we are answerable to him. And there will be a day coming when he will judge us for whether or not we have trusted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent to die on a cross to take our sins upon himself so that we might know forgiveness for sin rather than the full extent of his wrath that is to come. And I, I pray you would recognize that this is why Christians tell you about the gospel in the same way that we plead for someone who is one of our own who is running off after really the things of this world forgetting God uh, in the same way that we plead with them to repent, to turn back to God and live a life of love and obedience to the Father uh, we plead with you so would you consider what this gospel is would you see God's love in that and consider how you might respond. The Bible says you, need only, you don't need to try harder to win his approval. It says you need to put your faith in him. You need to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and bank your everything on that. And you need to turn from your sin. And in doing so, he will receive you and show you your grace, show you his grace happy to talk to you about that afterwards if you like not only is this for the good of the sinner this church discipline is for the good of the church we see this in verses 6 to 8 uh, your boasting is not good Paul reiterates uh, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough uh, Paul is trying to highlight for them this, this important message that sin, sin spreads like yeast through a batch of dough now this would have been a common uh, a common thing for them to get a hold of. Uh, they, didn't, they couldn't go to supermarkets and buy yeast in those days for their bread to rise. No, they, what they had to do is as they were making dough for the week, uh, bread for the week, they would, they would have a, a batch and they would, for the next week, tear off just that little bit of dough and uh, they would pour juices on it that it would ferment and then they would work that into next week's batch of dough so that their bread would rise. That's what they did. And that little bit of dough would... Uh, the yeast in that little lump would work its way through the whole batch of dough, uh, uh, making all of the bread that we're going to make for that week able to rise. That's just what they did regularly. Uh, and what Paul is doing is taking that yeast and saying, look, that's exactly how sin works. Sin spreads just like that. It doesn't just stay in the little lump. It infects so many more. And it's the nature of this sin to do damage, 
not to do good. It's the nature of sin to tear apart. Um, I was reading last night, um, I'm rereading through the books, The Lord of the Rings, and I was reading through uh, the first book, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, and reading about uh, Frodo Baggins on Weathertop. Indulge me a wee second, I love this kind of thing. Um, uh, Frodo uh, is, <laughs> is up on Weathertop, this, this top, uh, a top of a hill where they can see for miles and miles around, and he is wounded by these things called ring wraiths, big, dark, ugly guys. You, don't, you wouldn't like them at all. And he's wounded with a blade that leaves a splinter in his chest. And the thing is, there is, there is a, a magical wickedness in this splinter that, as if it's alive, it's working its way towards Frodo's heart. And as Tolkien says, if it has its way, he would become a slave to these evil guys. I'm paraphrasing. Be like them and under dominion of the Dark Lord. And I just thought to myself, that's quite an illustration for us of what happens here, of the effect of sin, that as it works its way, as, it, as that little splinter worked its way into Frodo, it affected his whole body. And that's exactly what happens with sin. Sin works its way in, and all it does is do damage. And the reason why God is not happy with this is because he has called his church to be pure. That is why Paul would go on to say in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. As you really are. In other words, you're supposed to be free from all of that sin. Now he's harking back here to the story of the Exodus, back in the Old Testament, where God's people were amazingly and wonderfully freed from the oppression of Egypt. Egypt was killing Israel. And God called on them to make preparations for his great salvation that was, that was to come. And what they had to do was they had to sweep out all of their old, uh, they had to throw out all the old dough, keep none of it aside. They would have a feast of unleavened bread where they would just keep that, those flat breads and that would be what they would eat. And he's saying, Paul is really taking the, these Gentile Corinthians, putting them in that story and saying, in the same way that they got rid of that old yeast, that old leaven, you must get rid of sin. Free from it. Be pure. And this is where he says, be who you really are. Be who you really are. Pure. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, he says. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And again, they'd be thinking back to that Exodus story where in that final act of God's judgment in bringing the ten plagues on Egypt, the firstborn sons were saved by the blood of a lamb marked on the doorposts. Destruction did not come near their houses because the lamb died in the place of those inside. So Paul is encouraging them in this from the off. Be who you really are. You have been saved from a great, great judgment. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, live in the light of the salvation that is yours. He died in our place. His blood brings us salvation. And Paul ties this in to this whole situation to encourage them 
to work to protect the purity of the people of God that is his church. And part of that protecting the purity of that church is by the practicing of church discipline. Jesus has staked his reputation on the church. He is our head and we are his body. And he has proven that he will do all he can to protect his name. And like it or not, the world will draw conclusions about him from us. We are, we are like a mirror that serves to reflect the character of God. And God desires for that reflection to be as pure as he is. Be holy because I am holy, he says. And what Paul is doing is encouraging church discipline here. Serving to polish that mirror and if necessary, remove the specks. What happens if we do not practice this kind of discipline that Paul is mentioning? Well, we will end up being, I think, three things as a church. Indistinguishable. The church will be indistinguishable from the world. And therefore, we will be a poor witness. If the church does not offer the hope of salvation nor the evidence of a transformed life that would say, ah, your testimony of that salvation is proven by the very way you're living. Your gospel lives corroborate with your gospel works. It could leave us indistinguishable if we do not practice this rightly, if we do not take sin seriously in our midst. It can make us ineffective, ineffective in bringing salvation sure it's God's work but we are his agents are we not to spread the gospel the church will be if it's saturated by sinful people pursuing their own interests will be ineffective we won't have a gospel to offer and lastly we will just bring infamy we are supposed to display the glory of God and bring glory to his name But if we do not take sin seriously in the life of a local church, then the name of Jesus will be just brought into disrepute. And those who claim to be Christians will look nothing like Christ. But when we do take on board even this teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew 18, which comes alongside it, we will see actually that church discipline demonstrates love love for an individual in a church that he or she might be warned and brought to repentance I really want to be a part of the church that's willing to kick me out if I'm not living a life that's in keeping with the gospel I'm really glad that I'm part of a church where I've got the people here even in the pastoral team others who are willing to say to confront me over an issue if, there's a, if they see a sinful pattern in my life. It's a good thing. It's a demonstration of love. It'll be a demonstration of love for the church, even that weaker sheep might be protected so that sin doesn't spread throughout. A love for the watching world that it might see Christ's transforming power. And overall, a love for Christ that churches might uphold his holy name and walk in obedience to him.
That's why we should practice church discipline. For the glory of his name, for the good of sinners, and for the good of the church. Let's pray together.